You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski. Yitzchak, today, it's all movies. Even though usually we call this, uh, the subtitle of our show is Darshaning About Old Movies and Vintage TV. We'll leave TV for next week. We've got uh, a couple of old movies here. Actually, a quartet of old movies to talk about. So, what's your first pick for tonight for a film that perhaps uh, many people don't know about? And you're going to tell them some things about it to make it worth their while uh, to check it out. Go ahead. Well, one of my favorite, probably my favorite movie of all time was the original 1933 King Kong. And the reason I'm interested in this movie that I've only seen once, and it wasn't recently that I've seen it, um, is that it was filmed pretty much on the set at night while they filmed King Kong with much of the same uh, cast and crew. And that was the most dangerous game. Uh, Fay Ray is in it. Robert Armstrong is in it. Noble Johnson. A lot of the the people. And then the same uh, directors and, you know, Ernest B. Schertzak, Marin C. Cooper involved in it. Max Steiner did the, did the music and, the sets were the same sets as King Kong, but the fascinating thing is they um, managed to have that same cast who was so busy, uh, you know, and, and, and pushed so much during making King Kong, being able to play totally different characters uh, at night on the set. Uh, you know, RKO, they wanted to make the most out of their investment, particularly King Kong was a very expensive movie to make. They didn't know uh, King Kong saved RKO, but they didn't know if uh, if it was going to be worth their while. So they kind of, you know, doubled their you know their efforts by trying and hoping that they would double their money. I don't know. I know that that this most dangerous game, you know, it made twice as much money as it cost, but uh, King Kong cost a lot more. I think we probably have to mention the fact that <clears throat> both of these films have been made and remade uh, so often. I mean, the the most dangerous game was a short story that I read when I was, I think, in sixth or seventh grade in elementary school. I think it was part of our the book of our short stories that we were supposed to read. And the film has been, uh, I don't know how many times it's been made, four or five times, six times. Um, there was even uh, a, a 2020 a television series with 15 episodes and um it, the but the plot of course i think is 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 known for people but i'll i'll, I'll summarize it now right you have a, a situation where uh you have a, a young fellow and his i guess it's his girlfriend and, and they're coming to this island of uh, some very wealthy person and they think they're going in order to sort of engage in a hunting expedition right they're going to be hunting some um some very mysterious game that uh most people have never hunted before. And it's going to be a very exciting experience. Uh, and then the person discovers uh, this, uh, this eccentric fellow that owns the <laughs> island and is scheduling the whole hunting expedition that he's really planning on hunting the visitor himself, right? And yes. uh, the person discovers that he's being hunted. Now, you mentioned that it has most of the same cast, but you know that's not 100% true. The star of the movie, of course, was not in King Kong. And uh, the star of the movie was, of course, 
right? With Joel McRae. Yeah. And Joel McRae had, had a very illustrious Hollywood career. Um, a very long one, too. You know, I think he was he was making films um, uh, in the... In, I don't know if he was in silent films. He might have been in some silent films. But he was very much in those early... And, of course, the film you're talking about is 1932. So it's pre-code. I know Joel McRae made a number of pre-code films. Uh, and he was a heartthrob and um, a leading man. Hitchcock, of course, used him in Foreign Correspondent. And um, Preston Sturgis used him in a number of uh, films to sort of like replicate himself, uh, you know, to sort of to play himself, uh, that type of character. You know, he sort of he had a great affinity for him. Uh, so Joe McRae uh, wasn't yet a star, but Joe McRae, would have a, <laughs> Joe McRae would have quite a career, I think, afterwards. And playing mostly, you know, uh, Joe McRae, though, in many times has a little bit of a, a comedic edge to him. And, and King Kong, despite its seriousness, there's some self-deprecating humor in it. There's a certain sense of, you know, you're not laughing because it's um, it's kitschy. There is a certain uh, sense of, of of dread, but there is a, 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 a humor in it. Uh, does the film The Most Dangerous Game have any element of humor or is it extremely I, I... serious? I think it might even have more humor than King Kong because you're you're presenting these characters in a way that uh, that was the thing that impressed me the most was the like I said the the, um, the versatility that particularly Robert Armstrong showed and he'd been in a lot of movies uh we you know he's probably most remembered for King Kong but he as was Bay Ray was also they were both in I think hundreds and hundreds of movies if not at least dozens of movies. And here you see their, both of their ranges, uh, they're playing very different types of characters than they play in King Kong. Fay Ray uh, actually has her natural hair color, which is, is she was brown, she was a brunette, she was not a blonde, she was wearing a wig in King Kong. Um, you know, people assume that, she, oh, you know, they, they know her as a blonde, you know, playing Ann Darrow in King Kong, which, that was really just to kind of play up the you know the contrast of the colors between the the monster and her, um, and, and the and then uh, King yeah, Kong he, in King Kong he plays Denim who is going to find Kong and film Kong right and he's the one that is driving this whole brutal uh, odyssey right you know we're gonna find it we're gonna bring it we're gonna bring him back right we're gonna make a movie first and then we're gonna bring him back i mean denim is really the bad guy in a way i mean kong your sympathies are with kong especially you know uh, as you know as kong's death i think most people realize that and he in and, and, and this film also right he plays the he's fey ray's brother if i'm not mistaken oh, so actually he's, he's so he's not playing the bad guy here in this one and he's and he's drunk throughout the whole movie i see and so that's that's where kind of the the humor comes in is just the way that he plays this drunk character it's uh it's it's really totally different than than the than well, okay well again so what so it sounds like what you are uh what seems to inspire I mean, you here what's his barrio is is that the the versatility of actors but yeah. that's what acting is as john lovitz used to say yeah. acting right i armstrong was in mighty joe young and the character was much more similar to carl denham he was mm-hmm. slightly different there were, there was some some difference but he was kind of the same character if, if, if at least he was 
he was he was Carl Denham with a little bit of Carl Denham in Son of Kong, which is a little bit toned down Carl Denham. You know, he's he's not. But it, you know, maybe no. at the end he, he has a change of heart. Yitzchak, this is the struggle of all these uh, many of the actors of early Hollywood, uh, and even throughout, even in the glory days of Hollywood in the thirties, forties, and fifties. You know, the Dream Factory. Many actors felt that they were trapped in playing a certain types of roles. And once they became successful in a certain role and people loved them, so directors and, and producers wanted them to do the same thing, right? Yeah. And I mean, it worked about, here. With, you know, last time we talked about Phil Silvers, pretty much was the same character every time. Yeah, know? well, again, here's where I would disagree. The actors like Edward G. Robinson, who complained, or Bogart, you know, they complained about the fact that they were always cast as a certain type. And they tried to expand their range. Bogart, of course, made his own production company and tried to play a little bit of different roles. I don't know if he was so successful in it. Uh, Edward G. Robinson also, you know, didn't always want to play, um, you know, the gangster and the tough guy. Uh, he wanted to play an intellectual. He wanted to play other types of roles. And, and they did make somewhat of a name for themselves in that way. Again, I don't want to dash him at Phil Silvers. We talked about him last time. But there were certain characters like Silvers, like other Hollywood, you know, minor characters that were really very good at one thing. You might have, again, an actor that could, you know, a cold boy actor who could really do comedy, could do drama, uh, could play intelligent, uh, could play dim-witted. Uh, they, they relish the chance uh, to be able to do that, um, you know, as long as it fit in, you know, of course, you know, film is, is, is a visceral medium, you know, it had to jive with the looks of that person, right, and people had to be able to accept, you know, as long as, you know, makeup can only go so far, as far as that yeah. goes. But, Nowadays, uh, the makeup is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's gone a much much further. You know, they're able well, to do anything now. Right. Well, with fat suits and CGI and and anything, you know, people can play almost anything. Still, the, you know, it, it, it isn't surprising uh, that eventually, you know, actors feel can get pigeonholed. Not actually, in that way. But again, let's talk more, Yitzchak, about. Um, and I know the details are very fascinating to you, but I think we want to recommend, especially someone who hasn't seen the film, um, someone is, I think, is going to be caught up by the fact that this pre-code film, um, you know, it, it really is a sharp critique on humanity. It's a sharp critique about where civilization and society uh, had led them to, right? It was, it was a short story in 1924, which was, of course, the height of the Roaring Twenties. And, you know, people felt that with great money, we could do anything, we can go anywhere, we can explore everywhere, or we could conquer the world and, and just enjoy ourselves with amusement parks uh, springing up everywhere. So this film was really, the short story and the film are really uh, a sharp critique against the excesses of, of human beings, right? Because when you want to start hunting others and you want to turn that, uh, this leisure time experience of giving yourself the ultimate high of doing something that hasn't been done before, but then taking it out on another person, right? The, uh, you know, like the Hunger Games, which you know was a very popular book and, 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 and film series, is pretty much built on the same idea that people, the, 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 the gross uh, unhumanity of people, that, that they really want to treat others as just game uh, to be able to hunt and to find and um, uh, and it, it really right it really bespeaks uh, a barbarism that we know would erupt full force um, you know within five years or six years of the making of this film with the rise of the Nazi regime where people were hunted 
and where people were, right? And, and, and we know the glee that was taken in trying to, to catch them, to trying to catch the Jews and trying to round them up. So, you know, you know I think the film's message um, is, is in, the sto- in, the, in the short story's message is still very, it was, was very important in its time. And it seems to still pack a punch today. I mean, witness the fact that everybody knows, you know, this, this construct and yet the film, an idea keeps on being made again and again. Right. It, it, it must be due to 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 the the strength of the story. So as much as, you know, you're correct that 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 King Kong is a much more important film in Hollywood history as the first monster film, the first stop action, uh, so many other firsts in terms of King Kong. But the most dangerous game, it seems like was tapping into something that uh, is still very, very strong with us. The uh, the 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 using this medium uh, to turn the lens back on us in terms of that type of critique. Um, the, uh, I haven't seen, again, I, I have to tell you as much as you know, I know about movies, I probably have seen versions of it on some late shows when I was a kid, but I haven't actually searched it out because, um, but there are, I, I guess certain, can you discover, it would be interesting to discover the, the great differences between the 1932 version and the others in terms of, um, you know, what was considered, even though it was pre-code, what was considered a, a line you don't cross. Because I think, uh, you know, reading up on the film that you told me you were doing, I saw that uh, the Fay Ray character, and Fay Ray was a very uh, attractive woman, she was not being hunted, right? He said, I'm not going to hunt you, right? Right. Right. right, right. It was it was only the Joel McRae character was going to be hunted. So there was a certain uh, there was a, a certain civility there. Right, we're not going to hunt a woman, and maybe that had to do with production codes or something like that. But you know, she still was treated pretty much like a piece of meat, right? And right. and that way, I guess her role is uh, maybe probably less sympathetic and less important than her role in King Kong, where you know, you know, she seems to be the spirit of of humanity in King Kong that recognizes, you know, when the, Kong's love for her, you know, brings out the idea that this is not just a, uh, you know, some sort of monster, but this is actually something that's similar to ourselves. So um, I see. All right. You know, I talk about pigeonholing. I actually want to, uh, in, in, um, I actually want to talk about uh, another sort of like a Joel McRae type of actor or actress in this case, which is Linda Darnell. And Linda Darnell um, was an actress who, uh, a Texas girl, who came into Hollywood and um, she, I think she got into film when she, and and they thought she was like 17 or 18 and she was only like 12 or 13 or something like that. So she was obviously a very beautiful, well-developed woman at a very early age and her mother pushing her to go into film. And uh, she really was part of that, uh, you know, the, the mid and end of the 1930s. And in, in those films, because of her great beauty, um, you know, she played, uh, you know, a, a damsel in distress type of girl, or um, she even had leads, I think. Um, but she, what she wanted was not just to be this beautiful piece of eye candy. Um, she really desired uh, to, to, to push beyond, you know, uh, obviously, you know, Hollywood made a tremendous amount of money, uh, working with the motion picture magazines. Yeah. I'm saying, look, you know, at 15, uh, drums along the Moak, 
1939, along with uh, Claudette Colbert, another great, you know, known as great Hollywood beauty, but I think, uh, you know, I think Darnell was able to show her up in, in a certain way. Um, the, uh, but eventually, you know, Darnell did not want to play just, uh, like I said, you know, just those, those, those roles that were just being lovely, uh, et cetera, and, you know, and do pinup pictures. Um, so she, um, she actually, uh, at Fox, she wanted to play a different type of role. She wanted to play a role where, and this really arose at the same time that, you know, femme fatales were becoming much more popular, uh, you know, film noir and other things were becoming uh, what, what was later known as film noir. And she, there was a, a book that was called Hangover Square. And Hangover Square was a, a popular book about, uh, uh, and it had a, uh, had a psychological element to it about a person, who, uh, a, a composer who during blackouts becomes murderous and his worst parts of him come out, sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde type of situation. Um, and she wanted this role. She wanted the role in Hangover Square uh, where she plays a real rotten, manipulative, evil person. A person who's aware of their beauty and their power, but is a person who is completely willing to um, to, to be duplicitous and to get whatever she wants uh, from life. Uh, even it means using and and destroying people at, at, at that time. Now, I mentioned Linda Darnell because she picked this film. But really, the star of the film, and that's why I think it's worth watching, although Linda Darnell is definitely, uh, her role as, as a woman you'd like to hate is, is, is interesting, um, Laird Krieger. Now, Laird Krieger was uh, a fellow who, by the time this film came out, he had died. Now, he had been in films um, for a number of years, just for a few years before that, and he was very popular. He was a Sydney Greenstreet but a younger version. He, he, he could play ominous. He could play uh, with a certain sense of depth. He was, he was sort of like Orson Welles and Sydney Greenstreet uh, and, and Edward G. Robinson rolled into one in this huge frame. He was probably about 6'3 or 6'4, a huge fellow, uh, close to 300 pounds when he was starting in film. And, um, you know, he played much older uh, than he was. He, he in the film "I Wake Up Screaming," he plays this sort of uh, psychotic type of uh, detective that, uh, even though he knows who the real murderer is, just wants to you know you know you know get the, the good guy and and is, is and is totally obsessed. So he was he was playing heavies. He was heavy and big, and he wanted because he could. He was becoming so popular that he wanted to also have a role like Lyndon Darnell, he wanted to break out of that. He didn't just want to be this, this uh, bad guy who would, uh, you know, who would threaten and would have this, uh, you know, this, 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 some sort of psychological issue that made him, uh, you know, the, the bane of the good guy. So they gave him a psychological issue. And in a way, he is sort of the villain of the piece. But he plays really, uh, he is the, in some sense, the hero. He plays a uh, composer who has incredible talent, 
He's a, he's a, 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 and Krieger, by the way, was able to, to, uh, to play the piano himself. So Krieger plays the composer of this film, who in, it's, it's sort of like in the Jack of the Ripper era, which actually he was in a, he actually was in that film too, called The Lodger, the remake. Um, and, and it was implied that he actually was the, 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 the murderer. But in this film, he goes, he got, he gets spells when certain things occur, when certain loud noises happen, he becomes imbalanced and the worst parts of him come out. And he has amnesia in a way where he can't, it's all in a fog. He can't remember what he's done. That's a usual Hollywood trope. You'd say, oh, you know, that's boring. I don't want to see that. But this film uh, was made by a Jewish fellow called you know, Hans Bram, who, was, who escaped Nazi Germany, very influenced by German expressionist films, the type of things that you see in, in, you know, in, in, in the early films like Nesfrato and, and, and M and other things like that. And this film is also very moody in terms of the way it's shot in the dark and the angles. So Brahm does an incredible job, although you know where it's, what's going on. The very first scene, there's a, 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 a clearly an Orthodox Jewish man uh, being stabbed to death. The very first scene, I think you see the face of the Orthodox Jewish man who is, it turns out is an antique dealer, is being stabbed by, uh, by Laird Krieger. And, uh, you know, Laird Krieger makes his way home and then he sort of like comes out of the trance. So you know that he is a murderer, but he's also extremely talented, and uh, he has a, uh, but the other side of him, the other part of him that that finds himself attracted, not to the prim and proper girlfriend who lives in Hangover Square, and again, Hangover Square is sort of, I guess, when you're coming out of, coming out of uh, this drunken stupor, not the prim and proper girlfriend, but the one he becomes eventually attracted to is Lyndon Darnell, who is this, you know, a dance hall uh, singer who has very moderate talents. She's obviously extremely beautiful, but she can't really sing well. And she's really, but she knows when she can get her hooks into Krieger, Krieger, who can write a song that's perfect for her and the type of song that she knows she can become very popular with. So she plays him uh, to the hilt. Um, what's interesting in the backstory of the film is that Krieger, uh, the, the, the producers told him that he cannot, he can't, he couldn't be this mammoth body, since he was in a sense the hero of the film. He couldn't be as uh, as big as he had been. You know, it's one thing to be tall and towering, but he also had to lose weight. Now, in that time, this, the 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 medical or the pharmaceuticals uh, were that were being developed were these type of amphetamines that you know were able to, that could get people to lose weight very quickly. So he was popping these pills consistently. In fact, he did, uh, Krieger was, was so popular in terms of his losing weight that I think there were a number of articles in various magazines about how he did this astonishing loss of 150 pounds, you know, as he was, you know, making this film. Unfortunately, he died from a heart attack from, from, those, from those pills, right? So those pills are actually what would actually kill him. You know his his desire to be a leading man that could that that could that could actually be accepted as a as a serious actor, similar sort of like the part that Ray Milan plays in the Lost Weekend. You know, an actor who's who's suffering, and and and, and what he what he goes through, uh, he knew that he needed to look the part. 
Of course, that, that's, of course, what killed him. The film is not only wonderfully expressionist, it also has a, uh, you know, a, a sort of George Sanders steals the show a little bit as the psychologist who, you know, who works in Scotland Yard who somehow understands what's going on and pieces things together. You know, look, when George Sanders is in a film, you know you're going to get some, some solids there. So, you, you know, George Sanders could, could play, you know, he could play like the, the, the most dismissive evil guy in the world. And this poor Sanders is sort of, in a way, the police hero. Uh, but you never really uh, uh, connect to him. In many ways, you're still, in, you know, Krieger, is so um, magnetic that uh, despite, you know, Linda Darnell in the film, most people are probably going to remember him as, uh, you know, as, he, as he, when he sets a fire to this recital uh, that's occurring, he runs back into the, into the recital hall and keeps on playing his concerto as the fires are uh, around him. Um, and, uh, you know, he sort of like allows himself to become uh, you know, killed by the flames. Um, and, uh, and of course, by that time, you know, without giving too much away, he's done a couple of, <laughs> he's murdered more than the Jewish guy. Uh, he's done some more murders as well. So of course, you know, he, you know, he has to, he has to get his comeuppance, but he gets his comeuppance in, in, in a very, um, a very forceful way. Um, and, um, you know, in, in that sense, I think that uh, you know there's a, uh, a, a the message, of course, the message, of course, of 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 the conflict between human creativity, his desire to create, and human lust. You know, these two they're really both together. You know, the lust that he has for for this worthless woman, and also the creative energies that he has, the love that he has to create this concerto. You know, you know, Larry, Larry Krieger is really able to convey that. Um, and 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 what and, and how many of us are really uh, taken by, you know, the, the struggles of, of making a mark of who we are, of wanting to be loved, of wanting to be appreciated, um, of, and especially if we are somewhat misunderstood in terms of mental health. You know, the film perhaps uh, you know could do a better job in terms of having sympathy and understanding. But again, uh, Brahm is smart by placing the film back in 1902 or 1903, where, you know, again, the, the state of the doctors in that, st- in that time perhaps wasn't strong enough, you know, hinting that in today's time, things might have been different. So, uh, again, just to see Krieger on, on screen, <laughs> Linda Darnell is the icing on the cake, but just to see uh, uh, Krieger on the screen is definitely worth it. It's like, what's your second pick? Well, just like uh, the the first one I picked, the the most dangerous game was filmed at uh, you know on the set of another movie. I wanted to pick another movie that had that same type of production. It was uh, you know not not as uh, you know uh, uh, RKO you know as as uh, you know was was somewhat of a a major. Uh, a major uh, it, had, uh, it had prestige in the 30s and 40s definitely sure yeah uh this was not a major film this was a very minor film uh the creature from the haunted sea you would hear the the title and assume that it's some kind of a a serious horror movie uh, you know b horror movie it's really not it, even though it was advertised as such it wasn't really advertised you know, at least the poster that I'm familiar with uh, presented as a serious horror film. I don't think I've ever seen the 
the, the trailer to it, but it was really presented as a, a comedy film that does have a monster in it. Uh, it's it's not particularly good, but it's also, for what it is, it's not horrible, as, as a lot of people have, have claimed. It's a very convoluted story in a very short, the, the first one that I picked, The Most Dangerous Game, is only a little bit over an hour. And this movie was also released at just about an hour. And then when it was re-released on television, they actually had to film extra scenes to fill it out <laughs> to be 75 minutes, which they did for, Corman did for a lot of his movies. He did for The Wasp Woman. He did for, that the original theatrical release was actually shorter than the subsequent television releases, uh, which uh, probably even more well-known. So this movie, they actually added on a... Uh, a, a musical number into the uh into the television release that was not in the original uh theatrical release it, it's it's somewhat of a spy type of a story almost a precursor to get smart but uh it takes place with uh a, 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 there's a spy who's following some gangsters who are trying to get all of the riches of Cuba from that you know were left from uh, Batista's government after uh, Castro took over, and there it opens up with an animated uh, program where uh, you know he's talking about Castro taking over Cuba, the the narrator who's the the secret agent, and it shows all the people, uh, even the women and children, have to have beards that look like Castro's. Beard. <laughs> so, really, then, uh, so really, Corman, you know, well, Corman was obviously having a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. Corman, Corman's films are known as camp. You know, it's not it's not your like your like your uh, idol Ed Wood, but you know Ed, Ed, Ed Wood was sort of like campy because you know he he couldn't be anything <laughs> else. But I think Corman really later, later on Ed Wood was was campy and and sleazy, but uh, you know early on he he they say he was I don't I don't think he was really trying as much as as the. As, as they wanted to portray right, him, but, in the but Corman, Corman was Corman it was clearly trying. Corman, he, Corman is a, 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 a he's Corman is still alive. Yeah, he's 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 really a master filmmaker who learned how to do a lot with a little. He did he did make some very serious movies, but this one was pretty much what he made. Another, I think, might have even made two movies. I know one was called The Last Woman on Earth. Had some of the, I think, almost all the same cast as this one, and they were like, you know, we're here already, and uh, wherever they were filming, somewhere around Puerto Rico, uh, why don't we, uh, why don't we make another movie while we're here anyway? And they basically, he had made two other movies. The most famous one of the three would be uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which were also horror-based uh, comedies. So I, the first of the three was A Bucket of Blood, where uh, Dick Miller, who who was also in Little Shop of Horrors, is a, a more minor role, plays the the nevish. Uh, he's a busboy at a beatnik cafe, and he winds up accidentally killing his cat, and then accidentally killing a a a a, 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 a robber, uh, you know, a, a burglar in his house. And both of them, he covers with um, he covers with. Uh, clay to and and people assume that he sculpted these sculptures when actually he just he killed people and covered them with clay kind of like house of wax that type of thing and then uh and then he started murdering people in order to start you know to to become this great famous 
right uh, uh you know uh artists so the, and then little shop of horrors people know it's a similar story this movie doesn't have quite the same trope but it's the same type of horror comedy but the the couldn't here is that the in order to scare the cubans the gangsters tell them that there's some kind of a monster and and that's and they're murdering along the, again the same lines of of people being dehumanized and and uh, try and trying to gain their lusts they they are reduced to to animalistic murders uh like the most dangerous game and here they wind up uh you know blaming the all their murders on a monster and then there winds up actually being a monster and it causes a lot of friction and drama between the other people there and and, and, but, I, but I know the monster really looks crazy. I mean, the monster is so obvious, right? The monster from that sea is really, in a way, sort of a reflection of the uh, of the Midas Royals, as we would say, of all the people involved. Um, and I think the, the I think the last scene of the film, uh, the mo- the monster has sort of eaten everybody except the secret agent and, and one of the girls, right? And uh, and he's sort of like like the monster has has has, has basically eaten everybody. Um, and uh, as you say, it's it's played for laughs. I mean, Corman, uh, you know, we we can do a whole another show on Little Shop of Horrors and its Jewish influence that's in there. Um, but uh, you know, the the idea that uh, uh, that that horror and comedy can work together, you know, I, I think is, is is sort of a brilliant einfall uh, by Corman. Because you know, obviously, um, you know, we talked. You, you, we talked about *Bride of Frankenstein*. You talked about the humor there, but Corman really ramped it up. Um, uh, you know, really being um, in a way, uh, winking at the audience in many ways. But at the same time, you know, saying, "Yeah, but you're still going to pay your money, and you're still going to come and watch this, and you're still going to have fun." And as you say, Corman knew that within a couple of years it would just go on TV and it would be shown, you know, numerous, numerous times. And, you know, somehow people would, uh, would somehow still uh, be, would find it worthwhile, like watching it together and making fun of it. Right. Sort of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show type of thing. I mean, he couldn't have, he didn't think that he was making Gone with the Wind, uh, but, but he knew that this was something that would make money at its time and probably would have a shelf life afterwards uh, if he infused it with humor, you know, and it didn't take itself uh, so seriously. Uh, you know, you said before yeah, you talk about that. He never, he never lost money on a movie. Well, again, he made this film in five days, I think, right? Yeah, <laughs> I and he, and I, I, what I understand is he, he the uh, natives that he used from the island for extras, I maybe he paid them five dollars each or something like that you know <laughs> right he could yeah, to make can you imagine that a film in five days you know being right you know television commercials take days and days to get right and you know corman was able to you know put together slapdash uh this thing and they play you know when they when they came out they were they were the b films they played as double features um and because of that you know they were able to they were able to earn you know like you say it was very profitable was profitable uh you know people were able to put their money behind him one of the things i think you're pointing out which 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 i think you're fascinated with Yitzhak, is that you know certain directors like corman have their stock stock company and then they plug them in into various various roles um and they go with them and and you and that's really not so surprising you know it's a sort of the same way you know you you get used to certain actors making a film is so difficult you know one of the things that i think the modern age has shown us 
you know, in, in, the, in the films that we talk about, the credits, the beginning credits, the end credits last about 10 seconds and 20 seconds. Today, the film's credits, because of, you know, the demand to actually have every person who worked on the film be shown, takes takes about 20 minutes right <laughs> for the credits to finally to finally go my, my, when, when i would go to movies my family would say well, why are you standing there waiting and waiting and watching come on the movie's over and of course i wanted to see who played this what played that who who was there and 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 especially in these uh high-powered high-tech um you know uh, films with so much cgi and and, and other things there's there's it's, it's almost like you know all, all of shots to go through every single person that's part of a film now and, and now they have the post-credit sequences that they want you to stay for the. You know. That's right. That gets you to stay. That's true. My point, though, is is that even the old Hollywood, as we know from the IMDb uh, app, also had a tremendous amount of people working on it, but they weren't credited, um, and therefore, you need so many things to go right for a film to work that it made sense to stay with a certain team. A certain actor that you knew exactly how they what they were about certain actors a certain character actor uh, the director and, and, and the cameraman they were used to working in a certain way and i think that allowed that's that's one of the reasons why um you know you, you found the people that you liked you tried to get them vehicles that they could fit into and and sometimes stretch their versatility and sometimes you know you sometimes wrote a role you know uh, you know Preston Sturges for example had his um uh, stock characters William Demarest who you might remember of course from My Three Sons we've talked about him here before you know he was one of um he was one of uh uh uh, Sturgis's stock people, John Grieg, who usually plays a butler or, or an English fellow, he was also one of his uh, standard actors. So um, the point being is that uh, sometimes the director, since he's so comfortable with that person, will always have a role that that person was able to, to was able to fill. And it's interesting, you know, the first film that you said, um, you know, I don't know if Marion Cooper and, and Shoshak, uh made a whole series of films, but you know. Especially as you say, you're, they're making the film at the same time. It makes sense that they should try to use as much of the same people as possible. So they, 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 they had a history of actually making. They were Carl Denham. They would go and make the the uh, right. bring them back live type of you know uh, documentaries. They made uh, Chang and Grass, like these very high end documentaries that really taught people you know about different cultures in ways that had never been done before. So they were. You know, and they and they presented things really in a. In a yeah, look, like we said, Marion Cooper, we could do a whole program about. You know, you know, he was he was a, a really, in many ways, a very important visionary uh, in Hollywood. Um, the uh, I should say, by the way, you know, again, I I, I perhaps should have mentioned it before. Another great treat besides um, George Sanders, uh, fans of the Batman television show will be very happy that um, that Alan Napier who you might remember played Alfred. I don't know if you know that, but Alan Napier has a very nice role in the hangover square. He plays the father of the very prim girl. Who's a, who's a conductor who conducts uh, Laird Krieger's uh, concert that finally goes up. So it was great to see Alfred there, not answering the bat phone. So that was great to see, uh, to see him there. He, the, I'm happy that he was able to, to enter into camp culture as well. Uh, my last film, my second film, and what we're going to close with today with, um, is another film with Linda Darnell. And this was a film that 
uh, again, uh, she she pushed for this role. Um, and uh, the name of the film, of course, the name of the, it's very a very important film in terms of Hollywood. Uh, it's called No Way Out. Is featured often in one of your favorite channels, um, Turner Classic Movies on Black History Month. Uh, but it really is a film that uh, in many ways speaks to our time and especially, you know, the the idea of what has happened in the United States, um, the sensitivity uh, towards uh, racial bias. This was a film that portrayed uh, African-Americans as real characters. Uh, you know, it, it's really incredible if you think about it. Um, even Preston Sturgis, who was a, a very forward-looking filmmaker. Um, I talked about, of course, if you remember a couple of months ago, I talked about the sympathetic portrayal he had of African-American characters in Sullivan's Travels. But he also, in Sullivan's Travels, has an African-American character that uh, is is a complete buffoon. There are no buffoon characters in this film. Uh, This film was very realistic. It's the story of uh, a Black doctor uh, played by Sidney Poitier, and I, 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 again, it doesn't say introducing Sidney Poitier, uh, perhaps, but this was the film, his breakout film. Um, he could not have been, he was listed, uh, actually after, it was Richard Widmark, Linda Darnell, and Sidney Wharton with Sidney Poitier, but Sidney Poitier is almost in every scene in this film, and when he's when he's in that scene, he was only 22 years old, but he dominates. There is such a power to him. There is such a uh, not only because of his sharp looks, not only because of his articulation, but because of uh, there's you, there's just a magnetism that he has. Um, and this film, he plays a, a young doctor who comes from uh, the, the side of town where most of the, uh, the, the, the African-Americans are employed as Pullman porters and as maids or, or uh, working as, as elevator operators. And he is the one that's going to make it. He's the one who has become a doctor who has worked his heart to the bone. Uh, his wife has to work as a maid in someone else's house, but he has become a doctor. Uh, they live together with his sister and his brother, a nuclear family where they all support each other and they eat traditional black food, but without any trace of um, of, 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 of looking at them as your typical uh, characters that were, that were, for example, you know, that, that were seen in the Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, with, you know, with huge lips and bones in their mouth. Um, it was, and again, it was directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. Um, and again, it was, Zanuck was behind it. Uh, he really wanted a film that would be sort of like the gentleman's, the, 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 the black gentleman's agreement. Gentleman's Agreement, of course, was the film that exposed, after World War II, uh, the presence of great anti-Semitism, uh, and that it was it was the subtle anti-Semitism of Dorothy McGuire and all these characters who thought they were liberal, who actually hated uh, who hated Jews. In this film, there are clearly two types of whites. There are whites that are ribald haters of blacks, and they are shown as they even called garbage 
white trash, that term is not used, but that is, you know, what they are, they are seen as, and those characters get no sympathy. But it's clearly that Mankiewicz and, and, and Zanuck were after capturing the character in the middle, the white audience that needed to humans see that, that the blacks had flaws, they weren't saints and gods, but they were human. And they were human and, and capable and, and decent. And, and therefore, you know, they use, and it's strange, the character, the POV character they use is Linda Darnell. Linda Darnell plays in this film the uh, the wife of a uh, of a uh, hoodlum that the ex-wife of a hoodlum who is shot uh, trying to rob a, a, a gas station. Um, he's taken to a hospital and brought into the prison ward together with his brother who was on the holdup, played by Richard Widmark. Now, Richard Widmark from Kiss of Death, uh, as you know, the film that he made with Victor Mature playing Tommy Udo, he was always playing for years from the, from the, from the late 40s on, or mid 40s on, he was playing psychopaths into the mid to the early 1950s. Again, Widmark hated the fact that he was pigeonholed as this sadistic, uh, uh, slimy, sweaty you know, guy you'd love to hate. But Widmark, uh, it, it, and again, the film today cannot be made because you have white people saying the N-word over and over and over again. And you know, Widmark is, is painted without any sympathy but he has power and he watches as Sidney Poitier, as the, the doctor, treats his brother and, and, and gives him a spinal tap. Again, it's not as sophisticated as the, the medical television shows today that sort of really, uh, you know, somehow he takes, you know, but, but you know, he's going to do a spinal tap on the, uh, on the brother. And during the spinal tap, the brother who seems to have been in any way in some sort of funk and, and, and some sort of daze, goes into cardiac arrest or and dies and um the widmark uh, screams that the the that the n person the n word has killed his brother has killed his brother and won't stop saying it and what's interesting is is that you know the 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 policeman on the ward uh the the, the people who the cop who uh, who brought the the robbers in in some ways, they sort of are not sure. Could this black guy be a real doctor? Right? He's the one. Uh, could he have made a mistake? And, and, and it's that's the, the what the film is really trying to reach. It's the it's it's the rest of us who, as much as we oh we're all for civil rights, we like the fact that the blacks are given something. We still don't necessarily accept them. And we still perhaps think that they have done something wrong and that they didn't know what they were doing. A white doctor might have been different. And even though Widmark is an evil racist, his words echo and somehow find some sort of acceptance. The only, again, there is a saintly doctor, this Dr. Wharton, uh, uh, who, uh, who, is, who somehow always stands up for him. But he, he's such a saint, he's almost impossible. Now, Linda Darnell in the film, as I said, she's, she's approached by Poitier and, 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 and the head of the, the hospital in order to get an autopsy on the brother. Again, these were all ideas, by the way, Yitzchok, that were new. I mean, there were, there were movies that were made about hospitals before, but this film really dealt with what an autopsy was, what a spinal tap is, 
and this really, a lot of it has to do with the fact Hollywood's realism post-World War II. Um, uh, Linda Darnell refuses, uh, well, she's not sure. Uh, turns out, since she's not really married, she can't really give permission to give the autopsy. But when she goes to Richard Widmark, who's her, 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 her ex-husband's brother, it's revealed that she, has been, she had been unfaithful. She had cheated on him with Widmark. Uh, and Widmark is able to use the attraction that's still there to, uh, to plant, again, his hatred into her. And to use her as the pawn to go to the white trash community and to get them riled up and to, uh, to push the idea that the black guy had killed their brother. And that if we don't riot now, if we don't put the blacks in their place, the blacks are going to be more doctors and they're going to be, and they're going to be rising and they're going to want to take our place. And they're going to want to push us out. Um, and, you know, Widmark, in order to get her riled up, he said, would you want a black doctor? Would you want your, a black doctor's hands on you? And, um, you know, it, it strikes a chord with her, you know, even though she hates the white trash she's struggling to become a different woman to to become different he's still able to push her prejudices and push her buttons and she becomes the agent to actually bring the hatred to a boil and although she hates herself when she sees the savagery of the the white trash mob how they they are getting chains ready and they are banging on them and imagining that they're smashing the skulls of black people using the n-word over and over again um she's disgusted by what she is and what she's done um what's interesting though the films i think the most interesting thing in the film is that the film says and this is why it has resonance for today the, they got a, they got word of what the of the white trash were doing. There's somehow the blacks found out, and they're not going to let themselves get beaten up this time. And throughout the neighborhood, including in Sidney Poitier's home, where his brother-in-law, played by um, Ossie Davis, uncredited, Ruby D, of course, is in there as well. Ossie Davis's wife, she plays his wife uh, in this film. Uh, they go out to. Uh, uh, to ambush the white mob beforehand. And they do it with great wisdom. They figure out a way that they can surround them. They blind them with a, with a flare gun. They use, they use greater skill. And arguments are, are, and again, you know, Mankiewicz uses the argument, you know, are we being more barbaric than them? We have to take the high road, Sidney Poitier says. We have to be better than them. And, 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 and the argument back is, do we have to be better? It, they kill us if we just want to show that we're just as good. If we, they, they, they kill us. So you want us to be better? And this argument, again, this is BLM today, really. The idea that, there's, that, 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 that America is inherently racist isn't something that this film says, but this is what the, this is what, uh, the mob the, the 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 black mob is thinking. The black mob is saying, "Look, you know, they we're not going to do what Portier is doing. We're not going to just you know take it and say we just got to be better and be a, a better person. Uh, we we don't have to always act better than them. If they're not going to give us our humanity, we are going to we are going to fight back before we're destroyed. And they they lay it in on the uh, on the mob, and and it turns out that that most of the people that were killed that night in this in this in this uh racial uh, uh riot this 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 race riot 
are mostly white people. And um, so again, the, uh, the, 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 the Linda Darnell in this film eventually starts to realize, you know, that after the race riot, she believes the blacks were the devil. And then she comes to discover uh, the humanity of the black people. She comes to, to realize that, that there's a tremendous wisdom and tremendous love, tremendous humanity that, that, that they all possess, that all humans possess. Um, and uh, again, you know, Widmark uh, is, 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 is uh, unlike, uh, you know, characters in the, um, in, in the gangster films, like, you know, Cagney and Energy Robinson, you know, have to die a death in order, like, to punish them. Uh, Mankiewicz uh, does an interesting thing. He keeps Widmark alive. You know, Widmark is shot and he escapes and he's bleeding and... <laughs> Uh, he ends, you know, but but he but he, he attempts to kill Portier in the in the in the, in the, in the film's final scenes, <laughs> but despite the fact that a d- gun goes off, like Chekhov said, never show a gun unless you're going to see it go off. But the gun doesn't kill Widmark, and in fact, what Portier says at the end of the film is, "You're going to live, white boy. You're going to live." And of course, he's crying in pain, and 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 Portier is binding his his wounds for the second time but he's saying you're going to live white boy again as the as, as the police sirens are coming and i think that choice to to keep uh the villain alive and not to die for his sins is another way of mankiewicz saying it's still alive you know it would be too pat to kill the bigot off to kill the 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 the, the terrible uh, ugly figure off. Oh, he's dead. I'm glad he died. No, he's alive, and his poison is still here with us. So, I, I, it, 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 to me, because of the N words overuse, I think there's been sort of a boycott of this film. Uh, but I think it really, in, in many ways, is. Uh, I see it. I, I'm going to go out there and say it. I believe that it's a more effective film. Uh, in terms of combating prejudice than Gentleman's Agreement was. Um, you know, to me, Gentleman's Agreement, although it won the Oscar and, you know, people thought it was this incredible gift to the world, how Hollywood is, is seeing its anti-Semitism. Um, there's a lot, this film, I think, takes a lot more risks. You know, look, your Jew in, in Gentleman's Agreement is John Garfield. You know what I'm saying? So you you put John Garfield up as your Jew, you know that you're going to say, okay, isn't this a great guy? Isn't this a great American? Isn't like, there? You don't need much to embrace Garfield, but um, to embrace uh, the African American characters that that uh, he puts center stage and to accept them and understand them, that's something that I think is uh, is, is is a is a real feat that the film is able to do. A little bit long for your taste, Yitzchak. It does take a little bit long, but uh, I think it, I think it's worth it really for uh, Poitier and Darnell's performance again uh, as a woman who really shows a tremendous amount of growth and change, and she does a, a lot of acting with her face that you know I'm sure you know uh, much more than just being pretty. Uh, you know, I talked about Laird Krieger's death. I think I have to mention here, you know, Linda Darnell for all her beauty. Uh, she died. She was only 40. You know, she was, you know, barely 40 years old. And um, she died in a fire uh, where, you know, a fire burnt, uh, you know, 80% uh, of her body, which was the way she dies. And in, in, uh, she gets thrown into a, uh, <laughs> in, 
into a pile of fire in Hangover Square by Lord Krieger, Laird Krieger. So um, these films did not portend well for for the the, the future of these actors and actresses. Um, and uh, you know, it's it really, in a way, is it's a Musar Haskell. I would say, you know, uh, you know, you push your whole life, Yitzchak, to to become a great actor, and you want to, you want fame and fortune. You take the diet pills, and it kills you, right? Um, and uh, you're celebrated for for your great beauty. You're celebrated for this, and again, you know, the Rebbeinu Shalom shows uh, just in so many ways that you know, I call Hevel as it would be. So. Anyway, Yitzchak, I think that the uh... you know I I said that Corman said he never he never lost money on a movie. There was one movie they lost money on, and it was called The Intruder. Maybe we could talk about a different time where William Shatner plays a racist trying to prevent the integration of the school, and that was the, you know that was the one prestige picture that he made that he thought. And he, that was the one movie he lost money on. So, it's, uh... so he went back to uh, he went back to doing what he did best. Uh, yeah. Corman, I mean, we have to mention again. Look, Corman was very topical. You know, he had secret agents because you know at that time, in Fleming's books uh, were very popular. Cuba, of course, was in everybody's mind. Um, uh, the uh, you know the Bond films, I guess, were being in production already at that time. So having like a, a Maxwell Smart character was you know was pretty much. It was quite prescient. And uh, the Mafia, of course, uh, the most popular television show at the time was the uh, was the Untouchables, which, of course, featured the Mafia. So, you know, you know Corman always had his pulse on, uh, you know, on things uh, of what was of what he felt you know, where the audience where the audience's heart lied. Um in that case, in that way, I don't know if he was such a risk taker. You know, he 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 read the pulse uh, of, of the zeitgeist, and he gave them the 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 he gave them the 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 comic book that they wanted. You know, I think that's what it is. You know, sometimes you want to read a comic book, you just want to have a trashy uh, novel, dime store novel to read. I think that's what Corman's films were, and, and you know, he didn't want you to feel too guilty about it, but he didn't want you to, to take it too seriously either. I think the films that I'm talking about, whether it's uh, from uh, Hangover Square or um, Mankiewicz's, uh, you know, No Way Out. They, you know, they had pretentious. Uh, and uh, it's hard to know, Yitzchok, um, which films have a greater shelf life. You know, films that have pretensions that seem outdated today, uh, that seem to be, we've seemed to move beyond, or sometimes just the films that you just want to, um, you know, you want to cuddle up with and, and get a little bit of a laugh and, you know, and perhaps take a, uh, right? it's, it's hard to know. Uh, especially as uh, you know, as as our desires to escape comes from sometimes a different place within us. You know, sometimes we need a, a we need a film that'll somehow you know, cause us to contemplate back on our world. And sometimes, I guess, we want a film that that allows us to feel good. And maybe uh, maybe Corman <laughs> was able to satisfy that uh, in many ways. So that's it, my friends. So <laughs> watch your stuff going out. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.